On this episode of the show, I'm featuring a session from the 2019 conference. And this session is from Pierre Rochard. Let's listen. Gary knows how to put on a conference. I'm very impressed, uh, both as a speaker and as an attendee. Uh, he is just excellently organized in everything, perfect attention to detail. So thank you, Gary, for organizing BitBlock Boom. The, the, the panelists uh, on the panel that you just saw, they did not know about the questions. So uh, be very forgiving that, uh, you know, it was, they were put on the spot. And uh, so great job, guys. Um, today, I'm going to be preaching to the choir, I think, but um, hopefully I'll, I'll uh, be reiterating and reinforcing some points that you already knew, but maybe uh, you forgot to bring up with your no-coiner friends, um, or learning something new. I'm hoping that uh, there's something for everyone. Okay, time out. Any questions? Yes, buy Bitcoin. Today, already done. Okay. I see it on the screen up here, so that's a good start. Yeah, it's on, yeah. There it is. All right. Got it everywhere? Okay. And we got the clicker here. All right. All right. So I think that one of the biggest misconceptions and one that I had when I first heard about Bitcoin was that Bitcoin was just a payment system. And it's a very easy misconception to have uh, because if you just go read the white paper, you, you walk away from it just thinking, well, all right, and this allows me to transfer value on the internet without using a you know, trusted third party, a financial institution. Uh, and the, the white paper doesn't even say anything about Bitcoin's monetary policy. It doesn't mention the 21 million Bitcoin cap. It uh, doesn't explain uh, how, how the coins, you know, with the halving and all of this scarcity. Um, so it's been very easy for folks to overlook the fact that Bitcoin inherently just de facto as what it is, as how it exists in the world, is not just a payments technology. It is a savings technology as well. So if you think about, uh, I don't know if you've taken any uh, financial accounting classes, but uh, it's, I think you should if you have not. If you are receiving cash and then you hold it on your balance sheet, that's a cash inflow. Uh, and then if you send your cash out, that's a cash outflow. The time while it's on your balance sheet, it's savings. And in economics, people, economists talk about savings. Uh, and savings is distinct from investment. Uh, investment is when you give someone else your money and you expect them to put it to work by paying employees, by paying suppliers uh, to generate sales and turn a profit. Savings is when you just hold cash on your balance sheet. And when you're saving, what you're doing is that you're deferring the decision of whether to invest or consume and what to consume or what to invest in. 
And so savings is actually a crucial component of the economic process for people to be able to allocate their capital across time uh, without being pushed into uh, making a rash investment or uh, a, a compulsive uh, consumption decision. Now, we don't really think about savings a lot in our fiat world because fiat currencies are specifically designed to disincentivize you from savings. They deliberately inflate the supply of dollars or whatever you're using, euros, Japanese yen, uh, to try to push you to consume or invest as quickly as possible. And so we see people, when, whenever they receive their paycheck, uh, their first thing to think about is, all right, how much do I put in the stock market? How much do I put into uh, you know, a CD, lend it to the bank for 2%? Or how do I quickly get it out the door to go pay for my new car, you know, finance a new car, etc. So we're not used to thinking about just accumulating cash on our balance sheet and being very prudent about the way that we use our money. Um, so there's a number of different savings technologies like gold, the dollar, Bitcoin. Uh, today I'm going to make the argument for why uh, Bitcoin is the best uh, savings technology. First of all, we can talk about the scarcity of it. Uh, 2.1 quadrillion satoshis is the hard-coded maximum amount of uh, satoshis that'll exist. For those of you that don't know, there's 100 million satoshis in one Bitcoin. So it's a highly divisible uh, form of savings and 21 million Bitcoin. Now, there's been quite a few Bitcoin that have gotten lost. People you know, putting it on a hard drive back when it had no value in 2010, and then they throw the hard drive in the landfill. And sad stories, but uh, now people estimate there's about three to four million Bitcoin that have been lost. So take that into account when you think about Bitcoin scarcity. Now the counter argument, as we saw that there's, there, you know, Tone did a great job of uh, going through all the different altcoins that exist. So uh, people will say, well, how can Bitcoin be scarce when you can just copy paste uh, the Bitcoin code and create your own altcoin? Uh, so they argue that crypto is not scarce. Thousands of altcoins. Uh, some of them are trying to innovate, uh, of course, but um, in any case, they argue that it's inflationary. The metaphor I would draw would be in the art world where it's also true that there's an abundance of artwork uh, on your refrigerator from your children uh, or your niece or nephew, uh, and yet we don't see those pieces of art get auctioned off at Christie's for hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, but there are other pieces of art that do. So clearly we need to think more deeply about what drives value in the art market rather than generalizing to whether art is scarce or abundant. And I would argue that this applies to Bitcoin as well, where if we're thinking about the scarcity of Bitcoin, we need to specifically talk about Bitcoin and what differentiates it from the other cryptos. So I think that there's two main sources of differentiation. There's the fundamental adoption drivers, and then there's the reflexive feedback loops. And the fundamentals are really talking about where the rubber hits, meets the road, and the, the specific underlying properties of Bitcoin as a monetary system. Whereas the reflexive feedback loops are more about uh, incidental history of Bitcoin, uh, the social uh, layer of Bitcoin, and how that has evolved. I think both are equally uh, important, but let's start with the fundamental adoption drivers. 
Bitcoin is permissionless. So if you want to be sending and receiving Bitcoin payments, you don't need to sign up for a KYC AML account on an exchange. What you can do is you can spin up a BTC pay server merchant application uh, with a, a self-hosted WordPress, and you can be selling goods and services on the internet. Uh, you can even put it on Tor. Uh, and I think the, the greatest historical example of how permissionless Bitcoin is, is the Silk Road, right? Russell Bricht or whoever uh, Dread Pirate Roberts was, uh, was able to spin up a Tor hidden service and be able to uh, sell uh, or provide a marketplace for people who wanted to sell whatever they want. Now, ultimately, you know, he, he did get caught, but he actually, from what we know, did not get caught because of Bitcoin or because of the permissionless nature of Bitcoin. He got caught because the uh, U.S. Postal Service is not permissionless. So watch out for that. But if you're di selling digital goods or services, uh, obviously, uh, you, you can, the, the world is your oyster when it comes to accepting payments. And Tone touched on this as well. You know, like Netflix sells digital goods of uh, streaming video. There's no reason why they couldn't offer that anywhere in the world that has internet access. Um, and then you can also, you know, be, be using uh, Bitcoin on your phone. Uh, that's a screenshot of the uh, Lightning uh, app. So, again, you, you can just download the app, install it. You can be accepting payments peer-to-peer, -peer, sending them uh, without having to provide your driver's license or anything like that. So that's, that's the first uh, fundamental adoption driver for Bitcoin that I wanted to point out. Now, you could argue that altcoins are also benefit from this same level of permissionlessness. And uh, to, to an extent, I, I do agree um, that you know, they, they've, they've been able to uh, copy-paste this feature. But there are other parts of it. Now, seizure resistance is a little more complicated of trying to think, why, why is it that someone cannot just take your Bitcoin? And so there's the question of how to secure your private keys. A lot of people are relying on Coinbase and custodying with Coinbase uh, for, for their Bitcoin. Now, the problem with that is that that is not seizure resistant. It's no more seizure resistant than your bank account. The government can subpoena Coinbase, can freeze your Coinbase account, and seize your, your, your Bitcoin. On the other hand, if you decide to self-custody, you, know, you create a, an excellent multi-sig solution uh, like Justin Moon was talking about earlier today, um, whether it's with uh, Unchained Capital or CASA or uh, lots of other uh, options, including uh, the cold card from uh, Rodolfo Novak. So go check that out. Um, here we have a picture of the Open Dime, which is specifically shaped to be uh, seizure resistant in the context of a prison wallet. Uh, so that's very impressive engineering on his part. Now, there's also uh, the crypto steel here that allows uh, you to be seizure resistant from, from a fire, for example. Uh, so it's not necessarily just the government. It could also be uh, the elements of nature that are trying to seize your Bitcoin from you. So um, this is a huge advantage that Bitcoin has. And you can even take it so far as to just memorizing a seed so that you have a brain wallet, in which case you can just cross a national border and no matter how thoroughly they search you, they would not be able to know that in your mind there are Bitcoin. So it's another fundamental adoption driver for Bitcoin being seizure resistant. Now, it's important to point out that I used the word, and the community generally uses the word resistant. We're not saying it's seizure proof, right? 
there's always opportunities uh, for the government or for a thief or um, you know for you to accidentally lose your keys. Uh, the the question is how much does it cost? So by increasing the cost of seizing Bitcoin, making it more resistant to seizure than the alternatives whether it's physical gold bars uh, or uh, physical cash or a bank account, uh, that's what drives Bitcoin's uh, differentiating advantage there. Same thing with censor censorship resistant. I'm not going to argue that Bitcoin is censorship proof. Although, in practice, we've seen very little to no uh, censorship of Bitcoin transactions. Uh, the previous panel had discussed the issue of mining pools, and despite uh, complaints about centralization of mining pools, uh, they haven't really abused that centralization to uh, enable censorship of Bitcoin transactions. And even if they did, what would happen is that the uh, transaction fees that someone uh, attaches to a transaction would just increase until a miner gives up and includes it in a block. And the reason they give up is because it's a bit of a prisoner's dilemma of whoever includes that transaction first gets the transaction fee. Now, Bitcoin's transaction fees can go very high. Uh, we saw in December of 2017, the median transaction fee was $25 to $35 per transaction. And the reason that is, is that Bitcoin is, is such a liquid money at this point that even though uh, there, there is a cost to transacting on chain, the alternative would be for you to convert uh, your Bitcoin into a, a different cryptocurrency, incur the transaction costs, the slippage involved in doing that conversion, and then sending it cheaply on chain on a less secure chain. So what we've seen is that people are willing to pay very high transaction fees to use Bitcoin's network. Uh, and that tells us that Bitcoin's going to continue to be censorship resistant uh, since we'll be able to uh, send transactions uh, without worrying about miners not including uh, them in blocks. Now, sound so that again, this, this is a uh, fundamental adoption driver that altcoins uh, struggle to replicate because Bitcoin's transaction finality uh, is much greater than theirs, and the censorship resistance at the level of um, including transactions in blocks is much greater than in altcoins. Uh, so for a number of different reasons, uh, and it also applies to proof of stake as well. So for example, uh, EOS, they have mechanisms for, uh, the, the, they have institutionalized mechanisms for censoring transactions uh, based on whether they like it or not. You know, they were talking about trying to ban uh, gambling transactions. So there's no such thing going on in Bitcoin. Now the, the last fundamental adoption driver is the sound monetary policy. And um, so I, I thought Seyfedean would talk about that this morning, but he had more urgent issues to address uh, with regards to the, uh, the farming situation, which I actually uh, do agree with him. Uh, but uh, my personal hobby horse is the uh, Bitcoin sound monetary policy. And the huge advantage that Bitcoin has on this is the difficulty adjustment process. So when the value of Bitcoin is increasing in the marketplace, uh, there's, it's not the case that miners can just generate more Bitcoin to meet that additional demand. Uh, that is true of gold, where gold miners have to, or are incentivized to go mine more gold because now they can justify a greater cost, and so they bring out more tons of gold from the ground. Uh, with Bitcoin, there's a difficulty adjustment every two weeks so that it sticks to that uh, supply schedule. 
Um, and that's what allows Bitcoin scarcity to, to, to be a part of the network. Now, the part that's really important with monetary policy, because you'll have altcoins, they'll show you a similar graph, right? They'll say, oh, well, we have a, we have a sound money policy as well. Take a look at this. What differentiates Bitcoin is the credibility of that monetary policy and how a, a, a cryptocurrency's monetary policy is rendered credible is by the decentralization, not of the mining pools or of the hash rate, but of the fully validating nodes. That is, people using the Bitcoin software itself to verify that when someone tells them that they're sending them one Bitcoin, that that Bitcoin is in a valid Bitcoin transaction that gets included in a valid Bitcoin block and then buried uh, you know, behind you know, six confirmations or whatever the rule of thumb they're using is. Um, and you can only do that in a trustless manner if you are running a Bitcoin full node. Running a Bitcoin full node allows you to not only verify the, un the payments that you're receiving, it also allows you to verify Bitcoin's global monetary policy. And if, it, if a block ever comes in that deviates that uh, Bitcoin monetary policy, your node will automatically reject it, assuming there are no bugs. So cross your fingers. But so far, so good. We haven't had a, a, an inflation bug actually uh, get exploited. So here's a, a diagram of the Bitcoin network. Uh, it's kind of visualized. Um, and then you see at the uh, top right and top, uh, at the top of the page, there's all of this mining hash rate that's going into mining pools, uh, and they are submitting their blocks to the Bitcoin network for validation. And so uh, nodes are run by anyone, really. You can run a node on your laptop today or uh, your desktop or your Raspberry Pi. Um, what really matters, though, is when you're running a node that you use it to verify the transactions that you're receiving so that you don't have to trust a third-party block explorer or um, a, a, a someone else's node. And um, exchanges obviously also run their nodes. Any major economic players run their full nodes so that they can be verifying their payments. And when an invalid block comes in that tries to create more Bitcoin, this happened recently. Uh, it was not a malicious or nefarious uh, miner. It was just that they had a bug in their software that uh, accidentally tried to create a little more Bitcoin. Um, the whole network rejected that block as being invalid. And so that's what really shows you what enforces Bitcoin's monetary policy is this decentralized network of full nodes that has a open entry. So anyone can enter the Bitcoin uh, network. Uh, you can spin up a node on Tor so that you have better privacy in that regard, and you can use your full node to broadcast your transactions to peers, and then they'll relay it to a miner, and it'll ultimately get included in a block. So that's what enforces Bitcoin's monetary policy, and it's often overlooked or denigrated by detractors of Bitcoin who uh, will focus in on the centralization of mining pools or the centralization of uh, you know, software developers, for example. Because ultimately, what software you use to, to run your full node is up to you. You get to opt in to what Bitcoin implementation you want to use. You can write your own from scratch. Uh, you can use one of the many that already exists. Um, 
And you know, the, the, the most prominent one is Bitcoin Core because it is kind of the historical descendant of Satoshi's code base. Uh, and uh, currently it has a, an excellent set of open source contributors who are really moving the Bitcoin network uh, in terms of innovation and uh, reliability. They're moving it forward. So uh, that's on nodes. Now we're going to get into the reflexive feedback loops. So these are, you know, I don't consider them to be fundamentals because they're basically just accidents of history. So first one is the first mover advantage, right, of Bitcoin's immaculate conception, as it's called, where Satoshi, when he first mined Bitcoin, he did not have a market price that existed for Bitcoin. Bitcoin was trading at zero dollars because nobody wanted it. And uh, he expended resources, right? When he was mining, it's not like he uh, had a pre-mine where he was uh, instantly granted X number of Bitcoin. He actually did the SHA-256 squared proof of work for those blocks that earned him the Bitcoin. So he did expend resources to earn something that at the time was completely worthless. And so from that perspective, Bitcoin did not have any seniorage, which means that there, there was no uh, untoward revenue that was made out of thin air by someone just creating currency uh, without actually doing the work uh, required. So uh, very few altcoins can, can claim that. Uh, and it, it, I think that it's actually impossible now to really uh, launch an altcoin in the same way uh, because there's so much attention on the space now. So whenever someone is creating a new altcoin, uh, it immediately has market value uh, to its detriment, I would argue. So uh, the second aspect of this is the Lindy effect, which is that the longer something is around, the longer we can expect it to be around. Uh, Bitcoin's now at 10 and a half years. So whenever someone uh, on the street hears about Bitcoin crashing or Bitcoin hitting a record new high, uh, they, they scratch their chin and think, wow, Bitcoin's still alive, huh? It's still, uh, it's still doing its thing. So that's Bitcoin's Lindy effect in action. And it really, it's much like in the advertising world where someone doesn't buy a product because it's the first time that they saw an ad for that product. They buy it maybe on the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, 12th time, 20th time, where the advertising has become ingrained in their brain and they're fully brainwashed. And so that's what uh, Bitcoin is doing. Uh, and I think the, the most effective form of advertising for Bitcoin has been uh, Michael Goldstein's advanced mimetic warfare, which has truly... Uh, reinforced the uh, cult-like echo chamber on Bitcoin Twitter so that uh, everyone is just stacking sats. Uh, and that credit goes to uh, Matt O'Dell for, for that meme. So uh, 10 and a half years of accumulation and distribution is also very important because we've seen Bitcoin's value uh, dramatically go up at times where it goes parabolic and then it crashes down. And in each one of these cycles, the ownership of Bitcoin is getting increasingly distributed far and wide as the whales cash out to go buy their Lambo and the new adopters get to go and uh, dollar cost average at a lower price than they otherwise would have. So uh, that also is an important part of Bitcoin's history, which uh, other altcoins struggle with as they, the ownership of it is too centralized and all they can do is just pump and dump it, like if you look at a chart of XRP, for example. So 
Another uh, reflexive uh, feedback loop is Bitcoin's brand. Everyone knows Bitcoin's brand now. It's a household name. Uh, even the uh, president of the United States is tweeting out about Bitcoin. Uh, and he doesn't tweet out about Ethereum or XRP or uh, anything else, right? It's just a generic and other cryptocurrencies because there's a long tail of um, you know, gray that we don't care about because orange coin good. So Bitcoin's brand is just uh, un unequivocally larger than, or greater. And you can quantify this. If you go on Google search trends, and even Bitcoin gets searched far more than even blockchain, which is just like this generic name. Um, and so it really shows the power that that brand has. Um, although I would argue that uh, a rose by any other name is still a rose. So even if uh, people try to ascribe maybe too much importance to the relationship between Bitcoin's brand and its valuation, I actually think that the brand is downstream of the valuation. That now Bitcoin has a, a place in people's minds because it is worth so much, not it is worth so much because its brand is so strong. Uh, Bitcoin's liquidity is also just miles ahead of uh, all the other competitors. Uh, there's, of course, there's the exchange limit order books, uh, there's the OTC desks, but I think what really matters is the order book in each one of your heads. So each one of you knows that if Bitcoin crashed to $2,000, you know how much Bitcoin you would buy. You know that you would, you, you would sell you know, whatever you need to sell to, to go buy uh, some more Bitcoin because it's a huge buying opportunity, or you would skip a vacation to buy some more Bitcoin. Um, and then on the opposite end, you also have a price at which you would maybe take some chips off the table and, uh, and diversify a little bit. Maybe when it hits 100,000 or 500,000 or a million, whatever it is, or, or when we're post-hyper-Bitcoinization and the US dollar no longer exists, but it's got a massive, Bitcoin has a massive amount of purchasing power, um, you have an order book in your mind, uh, whether it's goods and services or uh, any other type of investment, where you would sell your Bitcoin or you would buy your more Bitcoin. Um, and so if we add up everyone's order books uh, in their brains, uh, that really tells you what Bitcoin's you know, dark pool of liquidity is out in the public. Uh, granted, it's, it changes uh, depending on uh, your mood, but uh, it's still there nonetheless, and it far exceeds any of the other cryptocurrencies order books. And one other detail is that Bitcoin is the only uh, product, you know, crypto product that's traded uh, on the CME futures exchange. So that really shows that whatever the next step is of Bitcoin's liquidity, uh, you know, maybe it's a Bitcoin ETF, all the other cryptocurrencies are always playing catch up. And so maybe there will be Ethereum futures traded on CME, but it'll be years after Bitcoin got listed. And so they're always going to be lagging in the development of the liquidity uh, for these other cryptocurrencies. I want to finish the reflexivity on a uh, quote from Satoshi Nakamoto that it might make sense just to get some in case it catches on. Uh, and I, I found that to be a really interesting one because you, you could say that about any any kind of product, right? Uh, and the reason that that quote actually makes any sense at all is because of the fundamentals that, that we covered in the first place. Um, so, so something to, to keep in mind and, and maybe whisper it to, to your no-coiner friends and uh, they'll, they'll be uh, incepted. So I want to finish off with 
how should you use Bitcoin? How, you know, I talked about uh, having a cash inflow. So how do you how do you receive Bitcoin, uh, and then how do you hold Bitcoin, and how do you go out and spend it? So here are some uh, suggestions. Now, by no means is this list exhaustive. Uh, the Bitcoin ecosystem has grown to be so large that there would be no way for me to list every single uh, option here for uh, how to use Bitcoin. But I wanted to uh, pull out some of my favorite ones. Uh, so the first one is BTC Pay Server, which is, yeah. It's open source. Uh, you can host it yourself uh, in the cloud. And it comes bundled with a Bitcoin full node, with a Lightning node, uh, and with the ability to create merchant invoices. It also has a lot of different plugins to different e-commerce solutions. So if you're interested in selling goods and services so that you can accumulate Bitcoin, uh, using BTC Pay Server is an excellent option. Now, if you don't want to go through the trouble of self-hosting or you need a little more tech support um, and you don't mind giving up a little bit of the censorship resistance, uh, go with OpenNode. They have an excellent team of Bitcoiners who are excited to, to help folks out in, in onboarding them. Um, now, if you don't have any goods or services to sell online, uh, that's all right. There's the, the Cash app. So uh, go on to your, your favorite you know, Android mobile web store or Play Store or uh, the uh, Google, sorry, the Apple App Store. Um, download the Cash App. Uh, then you'll have the ability to buy Bitcoin uh, within the Cash App. And then you're going to want to transfer your Bitcoin, whether it's from OpenNode, BTC Pay Server, or the Cash App, to a hardware wallet. Now, uh, Cold Card from uh, Rodolfo, who is here, is an excellent option, as I mentioned earlier. Um, Casa provides a, a, a you know, more, more hand-holding with the uh, multi-sig so that you really feel comfortable about your setup and likewise for Unchained Capital, uh, which is based here in our home state of Texas. So go check out those different options for how to safely and securely uh, hold your Bitcoin uh, and kind of do some comparison shopping. There's no harm in, in trying out all three um, and, and seeing which one you feel most comfortable with putting uh, your, your Bitcoin savings on. Now, when you want to go spend a, a little bit of Bitcoin, uh, there's a lot of different options. Um, Breeze is an excellent lightning wallet that you can put on your iPhone or Android device. Uh, they open up a lightning channel to you, so you can be uh, receiving Bitcoin with Breeze as well. Uh, but you can also deposit Bitcoin in their uh, lightning wallet, and you can be uh, instantly and cheaply sending uh, Bitcoin payments around. Jewel, similar concept, except it's in your uh, your web browser on your desktop or laptop. So if you think about the amount of e-commerce shopping you do, most of it is going to be in your web browser, uh, on your computer or laptop. You can be uh, sending Bitcoin to, to your favorite merchant uh, very easily from within Jewel. Um, and then Dropbit is on mobile, and they're more of an on-chain wallet as well. Uh, and they have a, an integration with BitRefill if you want to buy uh, gift cards or phone cards as well. So. Huge high-level overview of the uh, different ways of, of using Bitcoin in terms of accumulating it, holding it, and then spending it. Um, my advice would be to spend as much time in that middle stage of saving it uh, before uh, you start thinking about uh, uh, spending it. And uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Pierre underscore Rochard. Uh, I also co-host the Noted Bitcoin podcast with the uh, meme master, Michael Goldstein. So... Uh, Go subscribe, go find your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the uh, Noted Bitcoin podcast. 
Uh, I think we have time for one or two questions now. So you mean importing a private key from a paper wallet into a hardware device. Um, not to my, I think that you, you could manually do it. Uh, I think that there's, there's differences in the format of it. So uh, these hardware wallets, they use you know, the new seed format uh, to, to do have a, what's called a hierarchical deterministic structure to it, um, whereas your paper wallet might just be a private key, public key pair. Uh, so uh, now, you know, you, you did mention the uh, cost of doing an on-chain transaction, but if, if you've got low time preference and you wait a little bit, uh, you'll definitely be able to send a transaction for one Satoshi per byte, which translates into about a nickel. So I would argue that if you can afford a hardware wallet, you can afford a nickel to, to send some Bitcoin on the network. So there, there's always there's always a threat, unfortunately. Um, so I, I would urge caution and uh, you know testing out a little bit a little bit amount of value, seeing if everything goes well, and then uh, doing more. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think that it also just depends on what specific software you're using, because some software has had a lot more peer review than others. Um, so if you go download an app on a random website, the odds of you uh, getting scammed are very high. Uh, but if you um, are very cautious about curating where you get your, your wallet software, then uh, you, you should be safe. Uh, but yeah, always, always be very careful with that. And uh, your green wallet is excellent. Green wallet, good. Uh, Green Wallet is, is made by uh, Blockstream. If I could have fit it on here, I definitely uh, would have. And uh, so they, they've, they've put together an excellent product. And uh, just make sure you, you download the, 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 the right one, you know, not, not an accidental uh, fake one of uh, phishing. So um, go, go to the official Blockstream website and click their links. Great. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to the BitBlock Boom podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or share the BitBlock Boom podcast with your friends. Also, make sure and take a look at this year's lineup of speakers that are at bitblockboom.com. And if you use the code COUSINS when purchasing your conference tickets, you'll receive 30% off the price of a general admission ticket. I hope I get to meet you in Dallas next year at the next BitBlock Boom. Thanks for listening. Bit Black Boom! Let's go! Let's go, Crypto!